This is the Ivy League Hoops Hour, where we cover all things men's basketball in the ancient eight. We are your hub, your go-to, your day one, but not really, though. I'm your co-host, Coach Sidney Johnson, former head coach of the Princeton Tigers from 2007 to 2011 and former three-time captain of the Tigers in 95, 96, and 97. I am joined by my co-host, Princeton alum, and former Princeton graduate assistant coach, Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler. Lawrence, how you making out? Outstanding, coach. What's the good word? Uh, it's it's all good on my end. I'm super excited about this week. We've had a terrific addition to our episodes with John Solomon, who joins us for My Eyes Don't Lie to Me as we review the week's past in the Ancient Eight. And we have a terrific interview with the head coach of the Yale Bulldogs, James Jones, as you join us for this weekly conversation, please don't keep this show to yourself. Tell your friends, your family, colleagues, randoms that you run into on the street, please tell them to listen in on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. Tell them to follow the show, subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and ask them, too, to spread the word. We have a hashtag. Ivy League Hoops Hour, where we'll tweet out things throughout the week just to give you some added content. And we have our YouTube channel, The Ivy League Hoops Hour, where you can listen in on the show. And as always, we invite your input, feedback, questions, comments, suggested guests. Please email us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com. Now, you have all the ways to enjoy the show and spread the word. Let's get into it. And now it's time for My Eyes Don't Lie to Me. First up from this weekend's games, Brown at Princeton. All right, let's start Saturday afternoon. Brown at Jadwin, a 76-74 Princeton win. Heading into this matchup, you had the most efficient offense in the conference facing off against the league's top defense. No Jalen Llewellyn for the Tigers, out for a second straight contest standing by in street clothes. A real slow start to this game. No points were recorded until the 17-15 mark when Brown's Tamanang Cho drove and switched hands for a layup. It seemed like the game would be played in the 60s, which on paper, to me, favored the visitors. Princeton switched their starting five for the second time in as many games with Tosan Evboman alongside Elijah Barnes for some added size. This was very much a league game with two teams that knew the other well, but also a contest that unexpectedly developed a nice offensive groove as the first half progressed. A trio of Drew Freiburg three-point jumpers were offset by a pair of alley-oop deliveries to Jalen Ganey from Brown. The final play of the first half was well-designed by the Bears' Mike Martin. A sideline inbound across the floor met Nana Awusu-Anane in the deep corner by the Princeton bench. He immediately passed to freshman Kino Lilly Jr. on the wing for a three and a 42-41 Bears lead at the break. As Stephen Goldsmith and I discussed at halftime, the play coach looked sneakily similar to one you highlighted that Princeton ran to tie their game this season against Drexel. and nearly knock off Notre Dame in the NCAA tournament. Looked like a variation of that set. Princeton trailed for their third straight Ivy game at the break. 
tactically, I appreciated how Brown dribbles at secondary defenders to put them in positions to make decisions on a bit of an island, like the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You must choose wisely. <laughs> the second half was tight throughout. In the final 218, it looked like Ganey blocked Tosan clean, but he was called for his fifth and disqualifying foul. Two free throws moved Princeton up by one. Awusu Anane elbowed Ethan Wright while posting for an offensive foul. Tosan ran the shot clock down and scored for a three-point Tiger edge. Cho answered off glass. Tosan was unable to finish inside. But at the other end, he blocked Cho clean. Matt Alaco for Princeton split a pair at the line to make it a two-point game. Lilly was fouled by Wright reaching on the perimeter, but while Lilly connected on his first free throw, he was unable to complete the second to tie the score once more. Brown fouled Ryan Langborg in the backcourt, and he also made one of two from the stripe. The Bears pushed the ball beyond half court and called time to set up for the final possession of regulation down two. Lilly, a player I liked a ton seeing him in person for the first time, he's quick but composed throughout, did not touch the ball on the final play. Dan Friday inbounded to Cho, who passed across to Paxton Wojcik in the far corner for three. His potential game winner sailed long over the rim as he floated beyond the bench, and Cho was unable to get off a follow-up before time ran out. Looked to me like the ball could have come direct to Lilly to start that possession. Tigers played with fire, going 13 for 21 at the line. Had five players in double figures, led by 21 for Tosan. Lilly, a career-high 25 but Princeton's roster simply possesses a larger margin for error than Brown. The largest leads, six on the Princeton side, three for Brown. The score never swung double digits, 19 lead changes. What a ball game, John. A few things I'd jump in and say. One, you're spot on in terms of that variation that Mike Martin uh, unveiled on Princeton right before half. Well-executed play and one that's... uh, Ripped it right out of the pages from uh, the Brad Stevens playbook. How about the, uh, again, that championship DNA, Jalen Llewellyn, outstanding player, certainly first team all Ivy pick in my mind. And to be out of that game and facing a good Brown team, once again, Princeton finds a way. I mean, they just seem to have the answers. Something I remember John Thompson III talking about is just having the answers for everything that comes your way. And to date, Princeton has been that team where, you know, key guy out or foul trouble or whatever you throw their way, Princeton seems to have the answer. And in back-to-back games for the Tigers, the ball is in the air with time basically expiring. Mm. For Princeton, the shot goes in. For Brown, it doesn't. And because of those two moments... Princeton gets two wins when it could have been two losses. Yep, yep, and it could be that close. I'm, I'm just excited because I also think that it's going to be a little bit more challenging on the road for things to, to bounce the Tigers' way, but that's really where they're going to show what they're made of. But, you know, it also starts with holding home court. Let's go up to New Haven, Cornell, and Yale. Oh, well, that's a game I know very well. I was fortunate enough to uh, be in attendance for that game, and um, – Obviously, very close with Brian Earl. And so I actually snuck over to the team hotel the night before and spent some time with him and the staff. The players had cleared out and got to 
joined them uh, as they finished up dinner and uh, Iona and Manhattan were, were on TV as on the big screen as we sat together as a staff. And so obviously a league I know well, so we're talking a lot of basketball and then obviously things kick over to the impending challenge for the afternoon to follow. Yale, they know uh, how good Azar Swain is, uh, they being the Cornell staff and really being attentive to how you know, dangerous he is from three, mid-range, just able to get his shots. But Cornell wasn't sure what to expect because Yale had that long layoff, you know, with the one game in 30 days or so. So it was fun to spend some time with them. And then I was able to attend the game in person representing the Ivy League Hoops Hour. I'll say this, you know, rebounding and offensive efficiency have always been James Jones's um, calling card with his most competitive teams. But there have been nine games this season where Yale has been out-rebounded and seven games where they have finished with fewer team assists than their opponents. But guys, in person, this had to be the best performance of the season for Yale. They were absolutely dominant. I was impressed with their energy, their sharpness, their execution. They were outstanding. And compared to the Big Red, who carried an 8-3 and three record going into conference play, Yale looked like the more game-ready, confident, and aware team. They corrected all of their issues um, in terms of those rebounding and low assist numbers. They were plus 16 rebounding margin, 20 assists to Cornell's 13. They forced 20 turnovers, and they held Cornell to 69 points. And Yale put up 96 points, guys, 96. Their energy, their, their bench was in it. it. seemed like every guy who went on the floor, played well. And with five minutes to go, James Jones, he emptied his bench, you know, and he gave his third unit some reps. And those guys look as sharp as the regular rotation guys. Uh, I'll say this, let's watch out for conference games to come and certainly junior and senior year, sophomore Matt Nolan. He's an East Catholic high school graduate from uh, the Hartford, Connecticut area. He had his way with the Cornell defenders. He had 17 points, eight rebounds, and I stand corrected. I will be eating crow. Uh, Yale is a contender this season, having seen how they performed. And Cornell, it's early, guys, but Ithaca may have a problem. They're one in three in the league, and they're just not looking like they did in the non-conference, whereas Yale really seems to be growing into the moment of conference play. Yeah, one in three in the conference, but only a game behind fourth place Penn in the loss column. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, again, early, but, you know, Cornell seems to be reeling a bit, you know, just in their current form. And Yale certainly looks like, hey, we've been here. We've done this. uh, Let's get these games on. So well played by the Bulldogs. Next up, let's go to Harvard at Columbia. I was impressed by Harvard's just road form. I mean, 91 points on the road is obviously spectacular, but they took full advantage of Columbia not having Patrick Harding and uh, Ike Nueke uh, in the lineup. Remember, Columbia's front court of Harding and Nueke performed exceedingly well against the Killer Peas last week. Uh, Harding grabbing 32 rebounds in two games, Nueke scoring 43 points in two games. So those guys have really kind of provided an anchor for the Lions to build around. Well, Harvard still did get out-rebounded in that matchup, 34-31, but they held Columbia to only seven offensive rebounds, 
which is pretty solid. Remember, Harvard's playing pretty much a five-guard lineup, and they shot 55% on their two-point shots, 36 points in the paint. I have to feel that that had to do with the lack of front court presence from Columbia. Uh, 91-82 for Harvard, they take full advantage, and they take care of business on the road and keep themselves in the hunt for a top-four finish. I think a lot of credit goes to Noah Kirkwood. The Kirkwood Express put up 28 points. Making stops in New York, New Haven, and Cambridge. All aboard. The whistles go woo! Yeah, he's something else. He's He's been whoop, really, whoop. really good <laughs> for four years. And um, we've known he's a, a highly recruited uh, player coming out of high school in Northfield, Mount Hermon, which has produced a, a number of great college players and, and certainly uh, Ivy League standouts. And Kirkwood is uh, arguably at the top of the list in that regard and his versatility, you know, he's making threes. He loves to run to the three point line uh, to spot up, or he'll just dribble. If he's the, you know, playmaker, he's just dribbling right to the three point line, let everybody go back on their heels and he's raising up for three. They're posting him up now, again, in the absence of their front court, uh, the injuries that the Crimson have suffered. So they're posting him up. He's got a mid range game, He gets to the free throw line and he's taking it all on. And it doesn't seem to like be wearing him down. Sometimes you put a little bit more, you add responsibility to your better players. And there's, there seems to be an adjustment period. And sometimes their shoulders sag a bit. This kid is just taking everything that Tommy Amaker has thrown his way and excelled at it, whether it's playmaking, scoring, rebounding, certainly leadership. And to round out the Saturday schedule, Dartmouth at Penn. Yeah, I thought Dartmouth did a great job to establish its its offensive flow in, in the first half. They, you know, got a four-point lead. They had Brendan Berry, fifth-year senior, making shots. And their freshman, Ryan Cornish, uh, he's brave, guys. He comes off the bench, and he's ready to ball, whether it's, you know, long threes, uh, mid-range stuff. But he's a confident young man. So they were able to get off from the three-point line in the first half. But Penn made adjustments to find those guys, and, and Dartmouth actually went one for nine in the second half from the three-point line. Penn pounded the ball inside. They had 36 points in the paint for the game, and they went 15 for 25 in the second half. And they forced Dartmouth into 17 turnovers. So Quakers have really taken full advantage in terms of being at home in the palestra. And uh, they've been outstanding in terms of building their confidence and getting the results. I'm going to become a true believer if they continue this form on the road. And that's the challenge that presents itself with the Quakers. But as far as being at home and holding home court and getting much better results than they did in non-conference, Steve Donahue and the staff, they feel like they've got a chance. And it clearly shows in these uh, early results. Being newcomers to podcasting ourselves, Lawrence and I want to bring your attention to a podcast that we have come to enjoy. Although they occasionally get to the pop culture or sports they claim to cover, Noah Savage spends most of his time on the World According to Noah Savage podcast, telling stories about himself and tries to keep his wife and fellow comedian Alyssa Wolf from falling asleep. Whether it's bombing horribly on a stand-up show getting a technical foul in a men's league game, or explaining why he had dog poop on his shoe in a work meeting, 
Noah and Alyssa truly never run out of things to tell each other on this hilarious weekly podcast available on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We encourage you to check them out. Now, let's get back to the Ivy League Hoops Hour. Well, that brings a close to the first day of action. Let's look at this second day and uh, let's kick it off again, John. You're back in the gym at Jadwin Gym to see one of the best rivalries in college basketball. The Penn Quakers visit the Tigers. Back at Jadwin on Monday afternoon, Penn, Princeton, the 3-0 Tigers, the 3-1 Quakers, a 74-64 Princeton win. First of all, while I don't yet love the new Ivy League schedule format, I love the decision to play on Martin Luther King Day. In retrospect, it only should have happened sooner. Jalen Llewellyn returned after missing two plus games, heading straight to the stationary bike every time he came out of the lineup. So much of the Penn offense runs through the arc via handoffs and ball screens. Sometimes they were even five out, but with that impressive spacing spreading the floor, there were surprisingly few three point attempts. Princeton showed a lot of trust on both offense and defense, offensively. It's just impressive to me how their four out one in scheme is routinely bolstered by great decisions, unselfishly finding open men. The Tigers turned a 14-9 deficit following a Matt March bucket into an advantage they would hold nearly the final 30 minutes. A Llewellyn transition three was followed by a triple for Matt Alaco after the Quakers picked up full court defensively for the first time. Drew Freiberg's tray following a Tosan assist made it 20 to 17 home team with 948 showing. For the first time in conference play, Princeton headed into the intermission leading up 34-28 after a nice body control bucket for Ebwoman in the waning seconds. Penn leading scorer and second leading scorer in the Ivy League, Jordan Dingle was 0 for 5 from the floor and scoreless in the first frame. It was a fast-moving and not especially physical opening 20. Princeton was called for one personal foul, just seven for the game, and Penn in the first half did not attempt a free throw. When play resumed, Llewellyn put home his own miss, and some wonderfully, again, unselfish passing in transition resulted in an Ethan Wright three. The Tigers' first four possessions after the break went offensive rebound bucket, three, right layup, Langborg three. So that's 10 total points on four trips down the floor. That is efficient. And you got to be good to beat Princeton this year, especially at home where they're now 11 and 0. And I think Penn's actually going to kick themselves looking back because they weren't good enough. But in the final 15 minutes, there were chances to be had as once crisp offense became more of a slog. Quakers found something that worked, posting senior Jelani Williams, who scored three times inside in the second half. A Martz bucket over right drew Penn within two at 51-49. Then you had a couple opportunities squandered. Wright slipped and lost the ball, but Martz traveled in transition, looking to draw even. And Clark Slidert could not finish over Abuoman to tie. Princeton went from 14.05 to 6.44 left without a field goal. 
when Wright swooped to his left off glass after many a perimeter pass for a three-point play. Dingle finally scored with 5.31 to go on a pair of free throws, added his first field goal on a three with 4.49 showing in front of the Penn bench, but a pair of additional turnovers for Penn when within single digits did them no favors. Wright turned Dingle over, leading to a three at the other end, and it was a 10-point game once more. Only eight makes from behind the arc for the Tigers. Penn held Tosan to nine points on four for 12 shooting. You will take either of those if you are the Quakers, but Penn was three for 12 behind the arc. Season lows in makes and attempts. Dingle, three for 12 from the floor. Tigers stay perfect at home, 4-0 and in Ivy action, but... As we've alluded to earlier, Princeton hasn't yet stepped outside Jadwin Jim in conference play. Seeing Yale in person, John, and being reminded of their impressive performance against UMass early in the year, which I was also in attendance for, they dominated the A-10 opponent, dominated Cornell uh, weeks later, coming off a layoff. They're the one team that I cannot wait to see that Yale-Princeton game. All right. I do think that Princeton is a class above, but I was reminded in person of what Yale has done in recent memory. They're the defending champs. Last two titles have gone to the Yale Bulldogs. And I just think that that matchup, as impressive as Princeton has been so far, that one really intrigues me. And uh, Lawrence has been saying it all along. And my eyes don't lie to me. Now seeing it in person. I think they're the one team that could make that interesting and certainly challenge the Tigers and certainly test the Tigers as they hit the road. Yeah, my eyes don't lie to me and the computer doesn't lie to me. I always like looking at Ken Pomeroy's statistical rankings. And for the first time, maybe since the start of the season, Yale is now the top ranked team in the Ivy League at 139 two spots ahead of Princeton at 141. So basically they are even statistically according to Ken Pomeroy's calculations. So I'm right there with you. I'm fascinated to see what it's going to look like both times those two teams face off. And I think it may ultimately come down to how both the Bulldogs and the Tigers perform against the schools that are not one another. Well, let's look at that Yale-Brown game, a back-and-forth game in much of the first half. But then when it got into the second half, Yale established a double-figure lead, guys, and they just outplayed Brown for a good eight to ten minutes. Um, you know, it was nine, ten, eleven, and Yale just kept playing inside out. Again, their collectivity, they're taking better care of the basketball. They're just getting better shots in league play, and they're converting. With that being said, you know, Brown's at home. They had a good crowd. It looked like uh, I thought of you, John, where you said some student athletes at Princeton have been coming out for the games. Well, Brown had a nice contingent of students, possibly student athletes, and there was a pretty good home court advantage there. And with six minutes to go, they really tightened up their defense and Tamanang Cho put on an amazing performance. Uh, Brown went on a 14-2 to run to cut the lead to one point and Cho had 12 of those 14 points. Uh, so 62-61, Yale still leading, and the home crowd was hyped. And certainly the game that I picked as the game of the weekend was sizing up for a great finish. Yale calls a timeout, 46 seconds to go. 
and James Jones draws up an expertly crafted driving play for Gabadon. He actually misses the dunk, but somehow the carom, how it came off, and it was probably one where he could have brought, you know, extended his wrist out and just laid it off the glass, but he went for the highlight play. He missed the dunk, but guys, the way the ball came off the rim, it actually came off the rim pretty softly, and EJ Jarvis just taps it in for the offensive rebound. Brown gets no closer, and that's the ball game, 66-63. So a gutty effort by Yale. Brown misses an opportunity to knock off one of the top teams in the league and uh, establish themselves, but they'll have other opportunities coming their way. I'm convinced of that. And Yale starts the season 2-0. and So a losing record going into conference play doesn't mean much. They're undefeated in the ancient eight. What do we got next? Uh, we have a cancellation for the snowstorm that never was. Yeah, I was a little bit turned off by that one. I don't know. Where do you guys come out on that? I, I just was like, the game was canceled due to an impending uh, snowstorm. And couldn't every game in the winter be canceled because of an impending snowstorm? Like, don't you have to get snowed out first before <laughs> you can't play the game? You know, and as I'm driving my daughter to practice the morning of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and granted, having to drive a little bit slower, but by guys, by about 1030 Eastern Standard Time, all the ice was gone. And it was like a sunny, you know, actually kind of fresh, bright winter day. I didn't get that one at all. Now, did they get significant precipitation up in Ithaca, though? Because I wondered if, and I, I don't know the behind the scenes workings, but I don't know if teams are traveling differently because of COVID than they might have in the past going up the day before. I wonder if just Columbia waited too long to leave Manhattan and Ithaca was just somewhere they couldn't reach. Well, I'll say this, John, Cornell was on the road themselves, right? So they were at Yale. So the same travel that Cornell underwent, Columbia would have to, right? So Cornell played their game at Yale, and they got on the bus and made a five-hour drive up to Ithaca. Well, Columbia played Harvard, right? Game's over. You get on the bus, and you head out. Am I wrong on that? I'm trying to put my meteorological hat on and, and see if how much of the storm was New York state based versus what there might've been in New England or down here. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I thought perhaps I know there, there was a game in the before times. So the last time that Princeton played at Cornell that ended up getting postponed because they were getting a ton of snow up in Ithaca and we had to turn around and spend the night in Scranton and there was nothing on the ground in Scranton, just, you know, 90 minutes South. So in that case, it was because the university closed because of a weather emergency, which sounds crazy for Ithaca, given the amount of snow that they get, but the university closed because of a weather emergency. And so all on campus events were postponed, but to the best of my knowledge, that was not the case this time out. Look, the safety and well-being of the, the student athletes, the coaches, the support staff, obviously that that's paramount. But I, I guess I would argue that, you know, if you're snowed in in Manhattan, 
or you're snowed in in Ithaca, it's all the same. None of the students are in classes right now. There's a little bit of flexibility to play a game that is an Ivy League contest. Certainly want to take part in MLK Junior uh, celebration or, or special games there and, uh, and keep this thing going. And to round out the weekend, Harvard at Dartmouth. Yeah, I mean, a rousing uh, Ivy League contest. We're going to have a lot of ball games this year, close ones and uh, ones that are fun to tune into. And um, Harvard, good win a couple of days before in terms of Columbia. And they're thinking, all right, we're back in this mix, um, especially if we get this Dartmouth win. They came in and took the lead and, and seemed to be in control of the game for the majority of the game. But Dartmouth always plays well at home. Uh, the Princeton offense has been good to them. It's getting them quality shots. Obviously, they have plenty of shooters, but I like the balance that Coach McLaughlin has uh, with the kid Kristowiak. The kid Wade has been good off the bench for them. It's been an interesting mix that he's been able to balance inside and outside play. Well, Harvard's in control of the game, and then all of a sudden, Dartmouth starts to come back very late. Harvard goes to the line to ice the game, essentially, or at least give themselves uh, a two-point edge literally with, with seconds to go. I think it was three, five seconds. They miss the free throw. Dartmouth grabs the rebound, pushes it down full court, pulls up for a six-foot jumper right in front of the rim, and it goes long. And there you have it, Harvard going 2-0 and on the weekend instead of 0-2, which is what I call it. So I'm way off on my picks this weekend, but that's the type of season that we're having. Kirkwood was, again, sensational, leading the Crimson with 24 points. I really like the kid, uh, Rye, for Dartmouth. Unfortunately, uh, he had a rough shooting night, and he was the one uh, who got that last-second shot. He actually finished two for 10 on the game, but he did grab uh, 10 rebounds, and uh, he also gives them kind of that inside-out presence but they just didn't make they didn't make shots they shot 34 percent from the field and uh harvard's defense is, is showing up so well done crimson i don't want to call him out by name but i knew that lucas sakota had no chance of making that free throw the, the front end <laughs> of the one and one why do you say that why do you say they're, they're up they're up one it's a one and one and the referee is icing them the referee is taking forever to get them the ball and he's fidgeting at the line. He's like stepping forward, stepping back, shaking his arms, putting yeah. his hands up to, to receive the pass. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes and, uh, that happens. Oh, uh, it was. I, I felt like I've seen that a lot in the Ivy League where big free throws. And I want you guys to watch for this. I want our listeners to watch for this the rest of the season. Just so maybe I'm nuts. But I've seen that a lot in the Ivy League. Big free throws late in games. And the officials, there's always something going on where they simply don't deliver the ball to the kid in a timely enough manner. Like I've just, I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen that image in my head watching games over the years. So just watch out for that. Some, somehow, some way, there's like a, oh, let's make sure we have the substitutions right, or, or the, or the time, or something with these officials that throws us the timing off for these kids. All they want to do is step up and take that free throw because certainly you get into your mind a little bit too much and you, uh, you get antsy, like you just said. Thanks for joining us on this week's version of My Eyes Don't Lie to Me. Our guest 
Chief Correspondent John Solomon. Thanks again, buddy. Good to of hear course, from you. Of I'm, course, I'm starting to accept that title. Thank you. Yes, yes. You wear it well. Our guest on this week's episode of the Ivy League Hoops Hour is the longest serving head men's basketball coach in the ancient eight and the all time winningest coach in Yale men's basketball history. Named head coach of the Yale program in 1999. It took him all of three seasons to earn his first Ivy League championship in 2002. And he's rattled off four more titles since then, including the past two championships played in the league. In addition to the countless individual honors and all Ivy accolades that his players have earned, our guest has received considerable recognition for his coaching achievements, including the 2016 Hugh Durham Award, a recognition of the top mid-major coach in Division I basketball, the 2019 Ben Job Award, awarded to the top minority head coach in Division I basketball, and folks, Ivy League Coach of the Year in 2015 16 and 2020 with his team currently sitting at a 2 and 0 undefeated record in league play he most certainly expects to compete for a third Ivy League championship in a row we have none other than Yale men's basketball head coach James Jones James welcome to the show thanks Ed Lauren I appreciate the introduction yeah it's great to have you on James I'm going to swing things right over to my co-host Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler. Lawrence take it away. Coach with the students on break I like to get a sense of the vibe of the team and what your days are like can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well you know obviously it's a good vibe because guys don't have to go to class right it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just basketball like you, you know obviously the considerable amount of energy our guys put into their academics and the time and and all of the late nights. And now it's, you know, they're probably watching TikTok videos and, and playing silly games. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a good vibe. We've gotten off to a great start in the league. So uh, obviously our guys are feeling pretty good right now. How would you compare, you mentioned now it's a little bit lighter load for them. Do you see James during the year when academics are in kind of full swing, but you're also obviously playing a full slate of games, a little bit of, I don't know, like wear and tear, but you know, there's a lot on these guys' plates. So do you actually see that kind of written all over them at times? Well, Sydney, you already know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you yeah. played in the league and you coached in the league, right? So, you know, you go to practice some days and you see that glassy-eyed look on some of your guys' faces. Right. Or you're in a film session and you see some guys dozing a little bit here and there because they're just tired, right? right. So those things are going to happen throughout the year. And, and that's why, you know, this time of the year it's – it's really good for our guys because they can just focus on basketball and the other parts of their lives or they get ready for another semester of um, heating it up here academically. But yeah, you can certainly notice it. And, you know, we go through it and you as a coach, you have to be cognizant of it. Um, so you can give them maybe a lighter day when they need it because uh, you can take a look at them and know that, you know what, I'm not getting a lot out of my guys today, not because of their effort or not because of what they want to do, but just because of where they are physically. And you have to give them some extra time. James, you won your first title in 2002. And now you're looking at being a defending champ of two titles in a row in 19 and 2020. And I know you've seen a lot of basketball and you've seen a lot of changes through the league and different programs and all that. But here's what I want to do, James. 
I want to know what you've learned from yourself as a coach during that time from 02 first championship to 19 and 2020, these championships. And now even now the difference in the way that you run the program and, and maybe even perhaps the things that have stayed the same during that time. Well, I'll tell you, let's go back with 1999. Like, you know, I was half crazy. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was 36 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, young. You know, I had a lot of energy about things and, Obviously, I, I was I knew a lot about basketball, but not nearly as much as I know now. And I would get so angry in games. Um, I throw my jacket off because we were so bad. Sid. Um, hmm. I throw my jacket off every game and I, I had no buttons on my sleeves because I broke them all throwing my jacket. <laughs> and, and, and I realized that that didn't help us win anything. And so I've become a much calmer person. I realized that if I'm going to be able to coach and, and understand what's going on on the floor and, and the, you know, all the thousands of decisions that you have to make over the course of a 40 minute game, I need to have my mind clear and getting angry and going at refs and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't bode well for me to be able to do that. So I've become a lot calmer. Um, mm-hmm. That first championship uh, we won was built on the energy that I had internally. And if I would have continued to coach like that, I probably would have had a heart attack. You know, I, I've become much softer and smoother over the years. Some of the stuff I used to do and, and had our guys doing the build and, and uh, what I thought was important, I, I find that it's not. Less is more, uh, so to speak, with me now. You know, giving your guys some time off, as we talked about when they were going through finals. I don't know if I did that or when they had midterms. I don't know if I did that or was able to care about it as much as I do now um, and understand how much better it is for our guys to get rest and and to have their um, minds free and clear of that stuff as opposed to being tired and uh, not being able to concentrate and focus. So I've learned that a lot um, over the years of, of just how to be calmer and cooler and um, understand the game a little bit more and what my guys need at a certain time to be successful. That's excellent. Pivoting a little bit, you know my relationship with the Earl brothers and Brian and you know being at your game just the other day and we got to meet you and Brian. It was kind of cool to be able to chat a little bit after the game. But you know that there's all kinds of family connections throughout the college game and the Division One level. The Earl brothers, Dan and Brian. There's Archie and Sean Miller. There's the Patinos, Rick and his son, Richard. And then obviously your brother, Joe, head coach at Boston University. I'm wondering if you can share with our audience, with myself and Lawrence, just the dynamic between you and Joe, is, is he the first person you call after a big win, a tough loss? I mean, what is that dynamic, James, between the two of you? Well, I'll tell you a little short story about my brother. So when he got the job at Columbia, I did everything under the sun to help him get that job in terms of uh, mentoring him, talking to him, trying to help him. Nice. Um, you know, obviously, these jobs are coveted. And there's, you know, there's 350 some odd division one jobs. Now there was less than that when he got his. So I ended up giving him my uh, report of all the guys we were recruiting, our recruiting report. So mm-hmm. I gave him a list. And back then we used to print it out on a, on a paper and you knew guys to call and with numbers, address and parents' names and all the important stuff. And I just gave it to Joe because I wanted him to be able to show the people from Columbia that he knew who to go after recruiting wise. Wow. So, wow. so that being, so that being said, there was a kid uh, by the name of uh, Ben Nuiku, I believe his name was, and he was from down in South Jersey. 
And um, we were trying to recruit him and get on, on campus for an unofficial visit. And then I learned that he visited Columbia. His parents were in Africa. So I was trying to figure out, Joe, who'd you get to bring Ben on your campus? So I asked him that question and he goes, I got to go. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> so I called him back. I said, yo, my man, I just gave you my top recruiting list. And now I'm asking you about a kid, how you got on the campus. Like, we're either going to share and be together <laughs> or we're not. So just let me know what the rules are. So, you know, and, and so I'll tell that story, busting his chops. Joe is tremendous. Uh, he's my best friend in the world. We talk most every day. Mm. Um, you know, he leans on me a lot. I'm an older brother and I'm supposed to know more. So, you know, I try to help him as much as I can. And, you know, we've had a great deal of success and he's had some success, uh, certainly recently with his team. And um, we kind of just chat about basketball and it's fun. I'll tell you the best thing about it, Sid, is that I'll go recruiting someplace and we will not have talked that day. Or we may have said, hey, I'm going recruiting today and not mention where. And all of a sudden he's in the gym. Wow. Or or our um, schedules match up in the summertime. And you just get to sit next to your brother for yeah. you know a, a, an hour and just laugh. And, and let me tell you something. We have a younger brother. I have a sister and I have another brother. I, I have a huge family. Mm-hmm. And, but when I get on the phone with my brother Joe and my brother John, all we do is laugh. Right. We, right. we, be- we belly laugh about stuff that we went through. Like we had a tough childhood. Our parents were divorced when I was 11. Joe was 10. John was nine. We had a tough childhood in a lot of ways. We got shipped around and just a bunch of stuff going on. And we'll, and, and all the crazy things that happen, we'll, but we'll get on the phone and we'll laugh till we cry. I said this to them once. I go, I wonder if other brothers do this. Because right. it's just an unbelievable relationship I have with my brothers and being able to be in the same profession with him and share and do, uh, it's, it's tremendous. That's outstanding. You know, he's actually told me about the text chain with you and your other brother. He's told me yeah, about yeah. that and the and the stuff yeah. that you guys get going and and yeah, that he's he's howling when it's whatever you guys are talking about. How how are those games then? That that's real love, man, and joy. How are those games when you're playing against each other? I got another story for you. So his first game of his key coach, he played Army, and we were playing Marist and the Pepsi challenge or something like that the mm-hmm. next day. Mm-hmm. So we were down in Poughkeepsie. So I got a waiver to go watch that game because my brother's first game, he was obviously fine with it. So I go watch his first game and they are freaking horrible. They're like a third grade basketball team they look like, right? So fast forward to the end of the year, we're at Columbia. The place is jam packed. Okay. You can't find this. You can't find the seat in the house and they stink. They might be like, so they improved a great deal as the season went on, but their record was like, say, seven and 20 at the time, something like that. Okay. And the place is sold out. And we have all our friends from childhood who are in the city. They're all sitting behind me. And I could feel the daggers from the people on the stands because everybody loves Joe Jones. Everybody just loves Joe. (laughs) So he had this kid, Dragon, and he made seven threes in a game. And every time he made a three, Joe would lift his hands up like the three-point signal. And I swear, to, I swear to God, I was going to run down there and tackle him. I swear to God I was. So Columbia ended up winning the game in overtime. Oh, it was awful for me. Um, so those were tough times. Um, yeah. It was great. It was great for my dad and my mom because uh, my dad got a chance to peacock and, um, you know, talk about his mm-hmm. sons and, and mm-hmm. be on uh, radio and, 
talk on television and to be interviewed by reporters. So he loved, he, he just ate that up. So it was very difficult on our family. We had started to talk. They started to get old. So he was in the league for seven years. And we talked about one of us has got to get out of here. This is just too hard. Like, there's too much at stake when yeah. you're going up against the brother, but recruiting and, and playing games. So fortunately for us, he was able to leave Columbia and take a job with Steve Donahue at Boston College for a year. And then he got another opportunity to uh, become a head coach. And he's, I think he's been at BU for like 10 years, which is ridiculous for me to think about. Yeah, it's amazing. And then I actually, I'm, I'm being very sincere here. When he won the Patriot League championship, I was so happy for him. Um, yep. You know, we had a good relationship when he was at Columbia. And I actually, for whatever it's worth, I wasn't thrilled of how they handled him leaving Columbia. So we've just kind of connected, bonded on that. Yep. And I thought yep. of you. I thought of you when your brother won, because that's a, a heck of an accomplishment. That's a good program, but they hadn't broken through in a bit. And uh, I just had to imagine the pride that you had to feel for your younger brother. Well, I'll tell you this. So a couple of things. I'm at home watching the championship game against Colgate. I'm screaming at the television. <laughs> um, screaming. His point guard made a couple of decisions late that I did. Like, you know, as a coach, you yeah. want to get like, I was, yes. here's the thing. Like I'm much more nervous watching my yep. son play tennis, right. like, as I'm sure you are too, um, Sydney, than I ever am coaching a game. Yep. And I was much more nervous watching my brother's team play that championship game than I ever been coaching any game I've ever coached at. Yeah. So just because cause you have some control when you're coaching, I have some control of what goes on and what doesn't go on. So that was wonderful to watch him win it. I was couldn't be happier for him. But one of my biggest regrets in life until things change was the fact that Joe was in the NCAA tournament and as yeah. were we. Yeah. Um, we, we. We got the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. And my mom passed away back in 2010. So my dad, again, he, he, to know him is to love him. He was going to have a chance to bounce around from city to city watching his sons play in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. And uh, and that 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 saddens me that he didn't get a chance to do that. And, yeah. and he just one other quick one about my dad, so it puts a perspective on who he is. This dude, he thinks it's all about him. So <laughs> we're on a bus going to the NCAA tournament my first year. And again, you know, the bus ride to a game, it's perfectly silent. Yeah, you don't hear, yeah. you don't hear, you don't, you can hear a pin drop. Right. And Doesn't everybody dad, know my, that? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My dad is in the front seat on the bus because I always sit in the second seat behind the bus driver. He's in the first seat behind the bus driver going, yeah, I'm on the bus with the team and we got a police escort going to the game. Yeah. I'm like, dad, would you <laughs> shut up, man? Would you shut up? <laughs> and I made the mistake of telling him that a reporter on TV wanted to interview him. So I told him that like on a Tuesday and then we were playing on a Thursday. On Wednesday, he's like, hey, James, the reporter didn't call me. What's up? You got to give him a guy to call. <laughs> I'm like, I called up the guy. I go, listen, if you don't call my father, I'm never talking to you again. Because right. he's going he's gonna to ride me like a bad pair of underwear. This guy. So, yeah, he, he's tremendous. So, for him not to be able to see his sons and, and, and to live through that and to tell everybody, he's down in Tennessee right now, to tell everybody, yeah, both my sons made the NCAA tournament. I mean, that was just like COVID killed that, and that, that, that yeah. saddens me to the day. Doesn't everyone know the rule of a quiet bus on game day? Oh, well. Appreciate James Jones's perspective and insights in our interview. 
And we encourage you to join us each and every week as we bring the best interviews we can find throughout the ancient eight student athletes, coaches, administrators, referees, you name it, you recommend it, and we'll get them on the show. Email us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com, and we'll continue to bring this amazing content. Now, back to our interview with head men's basketball coach of the Yale Bulldogs, James Jones. Yeah, yeah, that that is a tough blow. I, I, I actually, I'm being, again, heartfelt. I thought of that as well. All the work yeah. that your brother, you, you've been through it and not to take away from any of your shine, but him and that job that he finally breaks through and then doesn't get to experience actually playing yeah, yeah. in the NCAA tournament. But hey, good things. Both of you guys are looking good right now. So let's just, uh, you know, fingers crossed. No um, question. Um, let's pivot a little bit. Uh, I'm thinking about, cause you mentioned about coveted jobs and James, there's been a lot of, well, let's just call it what it is. There's a lot of attention on social justice, you know, um, it, whether it's just in general in society or certainly from the student athlete perspective, the student athletes that we've had on the show, James, they've raised issues of, you know, name and image and likeness support for mental health and also diversity issues. There was a time where when I was in the league with you, your brother was coaching. Uh, Craig Robinson was at Brown, Coach Dunn at Dartmouth, Tommy obviously at Harvard. And there are six of the eight um, ancient eight programs that have black coaches um, mm -hmm. today, only two. I'm not making a, you know, a, a comparison of but more of just in light of all the issues that are going on. Is there a need to address diversity and inclusion among coaches, not just in basketball, James? I don't want to put you on the spot, but there, but just in, in, in sports in general and campuses in general, is there still a need to address uh, these issues as it relates to athletics? Well, 100 percent. So here's a great one for you. You know, after George Floyd uh, murder. You know, the, a lot of social justice went around the country, which was tremendous. And it, it, it spoke to most every decent person. You know, mm -hmm. people came out of the woodwork. And what was great, I, I walked in some of the marches and the different makeup of the crowds were tremendous. Yeah. There, was support, there was support from everybody. It wasn't yes. just African-American people. There was yep. support from everybody, which gave you hope, right? Gives you hope for the future. That being said, we did a lot with um, coaches in the Ivy League about this. So I'm going to ask you a question, Sydney. If you take all the basketball coaches on the men's and women's side, you take all the head football coaches in the league, and you take their coordinators on the offenses and defensive sides of the ball, you take softball, you take hockey, you take baseball, mm -hmm. how many African-American coaches in the Ivy League do you think there are? Now, that might be, that might be 60 positions I just named. How yeah. many are African-American? I'm going to say not. I'm going to say like 10%, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I'm, how about the number two? Wow. wow. Uh, how about the number How about the number two? How okay. about the I am the only African-American head coach at Yale? Holy cow. I didn't, I wasn't aware. Okay, wow. So, right. so, so you asked me if it needs to be addressed. It certainly does. Like, you know, I'm on a call with all the coaches in the league, all the men's and women's coaches in the Ivy League, and we're talking about social justice and what we want to do uh, with our programs to try to um, not let the voice of what happened around George Floyd just die. Um, and, and all the other young men and women that were killed wrongly by police and 
by others. All right. So now we were trying to not let that die. And so I'm on a call and Tommy and I are the only brown faces on the call, except for, excuse me, I'm sorry, except for the uh, director of basketball operations at Penn, who kind of really took the ball and ran with it. Um, But I'm sitting here saying to myself, well, you know what? There's probably about four or five of you that shouldn't even have a job Mm. because there should be somebody of color in one of these positions that we don't have. Like to not have one African-American coach and a woman's side and only two on on the men's side. Well, I I find that to be somewhat outrageous. Um, So, and that's systematic of the entire landscape of college athletics. For people like you get it. um, I hear you for people who don't quite understand what is the impact on your campus department, student athletes to have more representation, like why? Well, you know, and, and again, you're asking that question, it's rhetorical, because I know you know the answer. Yeah. All the young people that go to these schools, who are they going to look up to? You know, I'm a head coach, and I believe I can become a head coach because John Thompson and Nolan Richardson Amen. were winning uh, NCAA championships. Amen. Yeah. So yeah. because they did it, it gave me a reason to believe, oh, you know what, I can do that now. There's somebody who looks like me that does that. So it's important to have people that look like you to make you feel like you have an opportunity. It's a subtle, simple thing, but that's just life. Um, one of my good friends, his name is David Beckman. David Beckman started the starter company. You remember those silky jackets that everybody yes, said? Was yeah, yeah, that was so, him? Yeah, yeah, that was him. He started that company. He's a local guy. He wow. coached Casey Hughes in high school. Yeah. And ever since, ever since then, we've become friends. And he went, went down to Pinehurst and coached down there. And there's the um, kid that's in the pros that he coached. In any event, he's a good friend. And when he was growing up, he, we, again, we go to lunch several times a year. He told me about his mother and how they used to save. And she had like these uh, coffee mugs. And like you put one for charity. You put one for a diamond for electricity. You put a diamond for the water bill. And that's the way they handle their business. So he grew up working in a factory for a man who did apparel business and he learned the business, but that person that, that he worked for looked like him, same nationality. So he had a belief and now again, he had a belief that, you know what, I think I could do this too. Right. Right. So I think that's kind of part of it. And that's why it's so important to have different races in our country in these positions of power. So the young people have someone to aspire to that looks like them that have had some similar experiences. Well said, James. I appreciate you sharing. You talk about young people, young people that are following your lead. I've been so impressed with what you've done with the program, how you've built it, the conviction, the purpose, the togetherness of your teams. Finish this sentence for me. A player, a potential recruit, or you can think about a player in your program now who embodies what you stand for. They will thrive under James Jones because they have these types of qualities. How would you finish that statement? I think that, number one, they need to be able to believe in in who we are and what we do at Yale. Mm -hmm. I think that that togetherness and belief is what really makes things special. There's nothing more incredible than building a team together and, and having a goal and reaching that goal as a group. So someone who wants to be a part of something special um, and give up something of themselves to be really good. I'm sitting in my office now and I have a photo from my last championship. I'll 
No, actually two years, two championships ago, 2019. And there's a photo of the team with the trophy. And I have recruits come in and I ask them what they see in that photo. And, you know, they'd say happy people, excitement, championship. And I say, what I see there is sacrifice. I see guys that never played, that came to practice every day and wanted to make the starters better. I see a starter who averaged 13 points a game and was a second-team all-league player. But as a senior, Trey Fields became our best defensive player, and his offense suffered somewhat because of what he did for us. But we don't win without him. So I see kids who are going to sacrifice and who are committed in believing what it is that's important to be successful. That's outstanding. Well, I'm sure that they're following it. Well, I know that. I look at the program. I look at the quality of recruits, the development, uh, and your 2-0 and start, James. It's, it's been impressive with such a long layoff. So I'm excited to see how the rest of the year plays out. I know you guys are going to be ready. Appreciate your time and joining us. And before we let you go, James, we always ask our guests, if there is something that they see, whether it's on their campus, so at Yale, within the department, and you have touched a bit on the diversity and inclusion, whether it's in Ivy League athletics or in college basketball as a whole, something that you would like to see change, um, and you could wave your magic wand and make it happen overnight, what would that look like? What would that be? If you look at NCAA football in 1A, you know, there's a larger percentage of teams that are able to play in postseason. Having been to the NCAA tournament, having been to the NIT as a coach, it is truly a special, unbelievably wonderful event to be a part of. Um, if the NCAA tournament was extended, um, and part of me thinks it shouldn't just because it maybe it takes away somewhat of how special it is, but to have more kids to be able to experience that. When I first got to Yale, that's what I wanted to accomplish. I wanted our community um, because, as you know, you're a Princeton Tiger. and You guys dominated the league with Penn for so long. It was my goal and my vision to be able to do that here at Yale so mm-hmm. we could experience what that joy is like and, and being part of that. So to be able to create a, a larger pool of, of, and I can't tell you if it's 96, 128, but to be able to have a larger pool, make it to the NCAA tournament, you know, I remember taking my son to elementary school and in 2016 when we went to the first NCAA tournament, there were some kids sitting down in his class filling out the bracket. It's just this wonderful, unbelievably American thing that we have and to have more kids experience that. I, I think I would, I would love to see that happen. You're the second coach that's come on the show and shared that. You'll, you'll get a kick out of the fact that Brian Earl. Cornell big redhead coach said the same thing, James, and my co-host had a a little bit of a follow-up. So I'm going to swing it to Lawrence right now. Lawrence, what do you say? So that's, that's just coach there. Sydney is just stirring the pot. Try to get me started, (laughs) worked up about Brian Earl's bubble tournament. We've been having this debate uh, on the Princeton side for years and uh, we still haven't resolved it. Uh, Brian Earl is in favor of expanding to 128. Yep. Uh, I say 64 is enough. If you want to get in, you got to win the games on the schedule. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's harsh. And, you know, I'm right there with you in terms of sharing that experience. It would be a great thing to get more teams in, but I think maybe we should shoot for it at large bid before we start uh, stacking the deck. Well, listen, I was uh, in the room, like, in, in 2016. Um, we went to New York, and um, we had a week before we played in the tournament. So we, 
went and watched the Knicks play, and then we saw we saw Ground Zero of them picking um, the NCAA teams, and they explained to me how they did it. I was on an ad hoc committee, and I flew out to Indianapolis to talk to them about how teams are selected. And the way things are currently set, there is no way in the world that, uh, in my mind, that an Ivy League team can get an at-large bid because it's just stacked up against you. You're not going to have enough opportunity to get quad one runs unless you're going to go out and play somewhere in like the Rainbow Classic or somewhere out in uh, a non a, um, a tournament where you're playing on a neutral court because none of those schools are going to come play in your right. gym. So that means you got to go beat – I got to go beat Seton Hall at Seton Hall. Yeah. I got to go beat Auburn at Auburn when they got uh, Jabari Smith and three officials against me. So yeah. it's one, one of those things <laughs> that Ed Lodge bid is a dream to have. And, you know, like I said, I want more people to experience it, but like I wouldn't want to cheapen it, right? I wouldn't, I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if it's 96, I don't know if it's 128. I don't want to cheapen uh, the NCAA tournament. You look at a year when VCU uh, wasn't supposed to be even make the tournament. They, they got all that crap about making the tournament and they end up going to the final four. So, you know, I think every year that some teams that, that don't make it, and again, I don't know if 128 is the number, there's some teams that don't make it that all of a sudden they could have an opportunity. And all these little guys who – there was a year where St. Mary's was like 26-4, and four and they don't make the NCAA tournament. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's, it's just like because they don't get a quiet work. Like, you have no idea how hard it is for me to schedule. You have no idea. It's impossible to schedule games. So that's one of the reasons why I, I, I would love that opportunity. And, you know, like it's, it's never going to – I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I don't think it is. But that's a dream that James Jones has. And it's a, a growing sentiment among the league. Well, I know a dream that you also have is to play your best basketball down the stretch, and you have a 2-0 start to doing that, James. This has been thoroughly enjoyable for myself and Lawrence. I know we went a little bit over your time, so I hope you can get back to prepping for the week. But, James, thanks so much for joining us on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. It's been a, a great, great conversation. I appreciate your time, man. Uh, you guys be good. Great talking to you. And you need anything over here, just let me know. Lawrence, now it is time to reach into our listener mailbag and respond to outreach from our audience. We appreciate you all joining us week in and week out and continue to do so in terms of posing questions and comments, feedback, whatever comes to mind. Write into us at Ivy League Hoops Hour at gmail.com, just the way that Paul Cook did, one of our dedicated and loyal listeners. Thank you, Paul. He wrote to us last week, and we're excited to uh, include you into this week's episode. Paul writes, hi, guys. Wondering if there would be an interest in discussing how advanced analytics have or have not changed the game. Seems like 25 to 30 years ago, we knew who to foul at the end of the game based on free throw percentage or field goal percentage on certain parts of the court. Now with advanced analytics, you have so much more data to analyze and put into the mix. I would love to hear the pros, cons of this development from a player and coaching perspective. Continue to be a huge fan, Paul Cook. Thanks a ton, Paul. We greatly appreciate it. And let's try to take a stab at it. How has it changed the game? I think most of our listeners will know, and you've seen the evolution of the game where we're so three-point heavy. Uh, it's either threes or two-point shots at the rim. Now, old-school folks would understand, like a guy like Pete Carrillo, who I played for, Hall of Fame coach, he always valued that. And so I don't know if we can only attribute that to analytics, but because 
So many people are crunching the numbers and weighting that value of the three-point shot so heavily. They've actually, you know, they're, they're coaching approaches that discourage the mid-range shot. Um, and I know that that's old-school basketball and something that many of our listeners in college basketball, basketball fans in general, lament. But the simple fact is that that mid-range shot, uh, as far as the analytics people would say, and, and I think the numbers bear it, is it doesn't yield as high of a, a return as, you know, your layups, your dunks, obviously free throws, um, which can come by virtue of trying to get layups and dunks or the three-point shot. So there you go. Bye-bye mid-range jump shot. You know, that's certainly a change. Obviously, we're always looking at free throw numbers late in the game, so that doesn't change. And I also would say the old school knowledge and appreciation of the little things, ironically, Paul, those are reflected in some of these new numbers. Okay. So for example, effective field goal percentage, that's a new analytical number that gives a value or a weight to shooting. You know, we always have understood that, you know, being a a long range shooter, there's a great value and worth to that. And certainly that much more when the three-point line was introduced. And so if I make five threes out of 10 shots and Lawrence, my buddy, my teammate, he makes five twos out of 10, makes five layups. With all due respect to my co-host, you know, I'm probably bringing a greater value to the team and effective field goal percentage which considers your made twos and threes with an extra weight towards the three-point shot reflects that truth, that fact. So there's certainly some pros. There's certainly some cons. I think a challenge too is condensing all of this new information, these new numbers, because you can get carried away with it. Uh, Without a doubt, from a coaching perspective, you can kind of go on and on and on. And the challenge is condensing it and delivering it to your players so that they continue to, of course, they want to play smart and know what the probabilities are of certain players going left or right or looking to step back and shoot, and they can defend all those things, but they also want to play with their hearts. Uh, they also, You also want them to improv because basketball is nothing if it's not fluid and led by players' decisions. You just want to help them make really good decisions but essentially put the ball in their hands and let them hoop. And so condensing those numbers, that is a great challenge from a coaching perspective and certainly from a player perspective to have those numbers uh, not overweigh them. I'll say an offshoot of this, and I always put a plug into us because I'm passionate, you know, is just in terms of youth player development in basketball. Analytics is fully integrated at all levels, folks professional basketball, NBA, uh, European basketball, highest level, Olympic, international competitions, high major basketball, mid-major, small college. Uh, They're even trying to pool their resources to buy video cameras and the different computer software to be able to analyze their practices and games, Uh, even high school and competitive prep school. So those folks who are out there in the youth basketball development space, I think, frankly, don't have an awareness of the integration of analytics and, frankly, the modern game. Pass, dribble, shoot, defend, and coaches on their endless pursuit, coaches at the higher level, an endless pursuit of efficiencies. And so then you have to train players and develop them 
with an understanding of that, how that may affect what their coaches or, or their teams are going to ask for them as they mature, and also what these numbers mean, you know? And so that's my little bit of a rant, but it's certainly something that I think is relevant to this conversation. Paul, it's an awesome question that you posed. Glad to uh, have taken it on and, and tried to take a stab at it and certainly uh, give us your response to it. And we open it up to our listeners as well. Don't hold back in terms of responding or commenting on anything that we cover in this show. It certainly is all things men's basketball in the ancient eight and then some. So please join us in this debate this discussion, this ongoing conversation throughout the year, Ivy League Hoops Hour at gmail.com. That's how you can reach us. And we will be sure to work your emails into the show. It's time for our non-Ivy League nod of the week. Coach, who have you got? Well, I've got a good one, Lawrence. Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, they load up the plane, practice gear, support staff, student athletes, coaches, the whole deal, game uniforms, road uniforms, and head to Washington, D.C. to face off against the Howard Bison, one of the most well-recognized and accomplished historically black universities in the country. What an awesome event Fantastic game to be played on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And the ball game was a good one. Steve Settle the third for Howard leads all game scores with 25 points. He's a 6'10 sophomore. He actually grabbed seven rebounds as well. But Notre Dame gets three guys in double figures and actually has some performance from Paul Atkinson Jr., former Yale Bulldog. He goes for six points and five rebounds. Notre Dame comes out on top, but it was a close game. And again, being played on MLK Junior Day, what an awesome game to have. Great event. Hopefully there are more signature games like that and shine some light on HBCUs and on Dr. King Jr.'s legacy. And now it's time to spread some love around the Ivy League. This week we're going to highlight Princeton men's track and field. Junior pole vaulter and Norwegian Olympian Sander Guttormsen set an Ivy League record at the World Pole Vault Summit with a height of 5.71 meters. Well done, Princeton track and field. It's time for predictions. Predictions, Pat. First up on Saturday, January 22nd, 2 p.m. tip-off, Brown at Columbia. I'm going Brown over Columbia. For me, this game comes down to physicality. How much does your physical nature affect both sides of the ball? We already know how impressive Brown has been with their defensive efficiency, 0.987 points per possession, second best in the Ivies. But now we also see their physicality highlighted in how many free throws they're getting on offense. They lead the league in attempts and makes. They're scoring almost 25 points per game from the free throw line. Lawrence Schuler, my partner, reminds me that you can't necessarily control what a team shoots from the free throw line, but we do need to know that the Lions yield a league worth 74% from the line from the opponent. So if they continue to do that, they'll lead to a lot of points for the Brown Bears. I'm going with physicality, winning out offensively and defensively. Brown over Columbia. Next up, we've got Princeton at Dartmouth. 
No chance that Dartmouth beats the league's best team. I'm going Princeton over Dartmouth. When I watch Princeton, I just see a whole lot of weapons. Tosan has been unguardable. Um, yes, people can lay off of him and dare him to shoot. They can bring an extra defender to dig down once he decides to drive. People are, are starting to work on that to try to figure this team out. But then what do you do? You open up uh, shooting opportunities for a handful of guys. And then with Jalen Llewellyn, who played one game, you know, missed the Brown game, but was able to come back for the second one against Penn, he's going to be able to knife through the defense and score from three post up sometimes. I just, there's just so many weapons, Lawrence. And then Dartmouth is running the Princeton offense respectfully. And, and they actually have some talent. Like I actually like watching Dartmouth, but Dartmouth isn't going to run the Princeton offense better than Princeton. And so I'm going with the Tigers. Next up, the most compelling shooting contest of the weekend, Harvard at Cornell. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's, there's going to be shots going up left and right as both teams are uh, relying heavily on the three-point shot and jump shots and perimeter offense in general. But Cornell makes me think of the fact that they lack a lot of reps together. They're pretty much playing this season under a fast and exciting pace of play. Uh, it's been wonderful to see that spark and to capture the national headlines. But frankly, Lawrence, this is a group that is new to each other. And I think unlike Princeton, who I was talking about earlier, you know, Princeton has a group of guys who've been playing basketball together for a while. And it shows just the comfort, the cohesion, the chemistry. Guys know when to get the ball to each other. They know when it's their time to take the shot. Cornell, the fast pace has allowed everybody. It's almost been an equal opportunity. Get it off quickly. But now with fewer reps, now you have a team needing to figure out how to flow uh, with less possessions, I should say, and less opportunities. And when you haven't spent a lot of time playing together, that can be a little dicey. And I think that they're figuring that out right now. And when you're figuring that out in conference play against teams that already have a well-established identity, it can be tough. I've been equally impressed and surprised by HYP, Lawrence, and, and you've got me converted over to your side. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you know, they seem to be holding on to this dominance in the league. And then there's an inability of Cornell to carry their non-conference success into league play. So the Big Red are undefeated at home, but I actually think against Harvard, that ends when the Crimson roll into town. Harvard over Cornell. And to round out the Saturday schedule, Yale at Penn. Yale guards the three-point line better than any team in the Ivy League. They're holding their opponent to 31% from the three-point line. Penn relies on 43% of their offense to come from the three-point line. That actually ranks 65th in the entire country, remember, out of 358 Division I teams. So that's a pretty good load to be relying on the three-point shot. I'm going defense over offense in this one. Yale comes out on top. So you've picked the visiting team in every game for Saturday. That's interesting. I didn't even know it was playing out that way, but I guess I'm going for the stronger team. I, I'm all over the place. People, please don't put money on my picks because I've also been on record saying that home court advantage is going to play out pretty strongly this year, but I'm pretty confident in my picks and I'm going week to week, Lawrence. I'm kind of reacting to the current form 
If I'm not seeing the game in person or live on TV, I'm watching it on replay. And that's what I'm feeling right now. So I'm, I'm sticking with it. Lastly, we've got one game for Tuesday, January 25th, 7 p.m. tip-off, Columbia at Yale. Columbia loses to Yale. The Lions rank seventh out of eight in the league in scoring. And Yale's defense has emerged in a big way. They lead the league in field goal percentage defense at 42%. The Lions are contending, certainly with Harding and Nweke. You know they're becoming a bit of my favorite kind of front court, to be honest. They're fun to watch. They're aggressive. And they're not as well recognized as many of the other front courts in the league. But they need to be healthy to provide an inside punch. And if they're not, Yale wins this game at home by double figures. All right, Lawrence, those are my picks. Again, please don't put too much weight on them, but that's strongly how I feel. What do you say with your picks? Prediction's about five seconds. Well, your picks make me a little nervous. I think Brown and Columbia will be really close. I think Harvard at Cornell will be really close. But since we don't have a shot clock and I have a two-game advantage, I'm going to pick the exact same picks that you did and preserve the lead. I'm going, wow. to kneel, I'm going to kneel the ball and go into halftime. I'm going to pick Brown over Columbia, Princeton over Dartmouth, Harvard over Cornell, Yale over Penn, and Yale over Columbia. What a disgrace, Lawrence. Show some originality. But listen, those are your picks, and I've got mine. Folks, we're just trying to figure this out and react to the film, the analytics, the current form, the student-athletes, injuries even. But let us know what you think, all right? Let us know what you see in terms of the top four teams in the league, one, two, three, four, and who's going to finish in Ivy Madness in March. We'd love to hear from you. So write in at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com. Share your top teams and join this conversation for predictions week in and week out. One more thing before we go. Oh, uh, one thing I almost forgot. Are you calling any games this week? Actually, Lawrence, I've got another Atlantic 10 face-off that I'm covering. Super excited to be on USA Network yet again this Sunday, January 23rd, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The UMass Minutemen, Lawrence, they're shooting the ball really well. One of the best shooting teams from the three-point line in the entire country. They're traveling to St. Louis to face off against the Billikens, led by Yuri Collins, one of the best passing point guards in NCAA basketball. Please join me and the telecast. Again, Sunday, 1.30 p.m. on USA Network. 304 black jerseys. Oh, what a look-off. <laughs> well, in our humble opinion, another outstanding episode. Why can we say that? John Solomon has certainly elevated our conversation and been a wonderful guest on My Eyes Don't Lie to Me. Terrific interview with James Jones, head coach of the Yale Bulldogs. And then we have you all joining us week in and week out. Couldn't do much better than that. Please continue to join us. Let us know how we're doing. Write in and share your feedback, suggestions, comments, suggested guests. You know the deal. And any point or counterpoint that Lawrence and I engage in. You can reach us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com. And please share this fun with your friends, family, colleagues. Let them know about the Ivy League Hoops Hour. Encourage them to subscribe, follow us, give us a five-star rating, and spread the word. 
as we cover all things men's basketball in the ancient eight. This is going to be a heck of a ride in conference play. We will see you next week. Well, you want to woo-woo? It's that woo-woo.